Welcome back. This is Tino Beth with episode number eight of the Quantum Feedback Podcast. Welcome to the Quantum Feedback Podcast, where together we'll explore the bridge between science and spirituality, translate the messages of the divine, and play the infinite game to live, love, and learn life lessons. I'm your host, Tino Beth. Let's dial in to quantum feedback. Welcome to the show. Today I'll be speaking with wildlife expert Gary Opert. He's a man you want walking by your side if you're in a national park or if you're going off the beaten track into into nature. And he prides himself on identifying wildlife, bird sounds, reptiles, insects, pretty much anything, you name it. He'll identify it. And he's been running a radio show on ABC North Coast for the past 30 years, helping people identify strange sounds in their environment from nature and identify different occurrences of nature. And he's also the foremost authority in Australian cryptozoology. So that's animals and wildlife that are hidden, that are not being reported and not being accounted for in mainstream media. Gary is pretty much retired now, and I grew up with Gary. I grew up with him. I um, The first time I met him was when I was probably about two or three years old. So this has been a long time coming to have a conversation with Gary and to explore the nature of our reality with him. Enjoy. Welcome, Tino, to Talawonga. Talawonga. Talawonga at uh, Wuyang. At Wuyang. Thanks, Gary. It's been a interesting um, relationship we've had. It began probably in 1980. I can't remember exactly. 86 or 89, I, maybe. I, when no, we... I met your mother and father about 1983 or 84 when they first moved to Tambourine Mountain. And uh, I met them over at Gabriel and Anna's house. Yeah, and I just got back from two years travelling through southern Australia and Tasmania. I was, I was spent one and a half years in Tasmania, a lot of the time with the Wilderness Society, and I was the ecologist for the Wilderness Society, and we had our wonderful uh, uh, campaign to to stop the uh, building of the uh a Gordon Dam on the Gordon Franklin River in, in the w- National Park Wilderness. Mm. And then I got back to Australia, and that's when I met your parents. And I can't remember if you were born then or not, or you came afterwards, mm. but then... We were living next door to each other. That's for... right. Then, your, then your, your parents bought the house next door, old Frank Fields' house, mm. and I'd, I'd bought... Uh, our house in 1975 on on uh, North Street, North Tambourine. It was a lovely little hoop pine cottage built about 1926 or something. And uh, uh, and then I'd I'd been one and a half years in Tasm in one and a half years in Southeast Asia, uh, a couple of years in New Guinea, six months in United States. And then back and forth, I was living at Tambourine. Then Carmel, I met your dad and your mother before I met Carmel. Mm. He came up in 1986. And then it was around about, might have been 87 or something, that your parents bought the house next Mm. door to us. And then we really got to know you well. Mm. And I remember both you and Marley as little children. Running around. Yeah. <laughs> and and then, of course, you, we'd have parties at your place and mm. and then our daughters would be there. We'd be there, of course. And Yeah. I remember exploring and crossing the fence and exploring your yeah. backyard. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> you up in the tree house. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the tree house. And the... <laughs> And you had your uh, <laughs> your dad had his big chicken coop. Oh yeah, yeah. And then we used to watch this dingo come every morning, and it would it would run at the chicken coop, and the chickens would fly, fly up in the up air. Like that. 
And so then it'd leap up and grab one. <laughs> That's how they were getting them. And then one time your your um, dad was hiding in the in the treehouse that he built in the avocado tree to see if he could with a crossbow or something. With a crossbow yeah. to see if he could catch <laughs> yeah. a dingo. And the dingo was watching you. When dingo wasn't going to come anywhere near. Yeah, the dingo knew it was there, so he didn't go anywhere near it. So he never got the dingo. Yeah. So that was good. The first time. Because <laughs> we liked the dingoes better than the And then the way we discovered that there was a dingo there was our elder so, daughter Savannah came running into the house and saying, there's a naughty dog, there's a naughty dog in the backyard. We had this big backyard included the property we bought next door. Mm. And uh, so we went up to have a look and there was a pile of chicken feathers. Mm. And a dingo bee eating a chook. Yeah. That's why she said it was naughty. A naughty dog. She knew it was naughty. <laughs> so she, she was only about, what, three, three, three. And, half, three. To, and yeah. she'd met a dingo in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dog outside. Yeah, under the, under the uh, rose gums and so Gary, surrounded by rainforest and the Curtis Falls, wonderful waterfall in Joala National Park. Yeah, it was right on the fringe there, wasn't it? Yeah. And over every night you'd hear the uh, yellow-bellied gliders. Mm. The, sugar the, gliders. Yeah, yeah sugar gliders, uh, Squirrel gliders and yellow-bellied gliders. Yellow-bellied gliders are about almost a metre long and they do 100-metre glides over the house and be going... <laughs> sort of have these wonderful calls as they glided through the air. And uh, paddy melons, little rainforest wallabies, uh, and, uh, of course, ring-tailed possums, brush-tailed possums, echidnas, goannas, big land mullets, Giant, the world's largest skinks, big black lizards. lizards. It's amazing that, like, um, like what you're describing, this natural world mm. is so like intuitive. It has its own consciousness. It, you know, every every animal is autonomous in its own living, its own yeah. life. It has its own it's reason all, for being. Uh, and it's all connected, though. They're all they're all ecosystems within ecosystems, so they're all connected. Yeah. And they're all relying on each other. From the trees to the tree roots to the shrubs to the fungi um, to what then whatever dominates that ground level and the tree level depends then on what animals come in to join that ecosystem. Mm. So it's all evolving and spiralling. Mm. It's all connected. Mm. And and so like at at a, the ordinary level that we look at everything at, and for instance, that was absolutely beautiful place, and we had beautiful black and gold regent bower birds yeah. uh, in the garden. We had a fabulous a, a pair of satin bower birds, or a family of them, the beautiful blue satin bower birds, and they had their bower in our front garden near the house, and our daughters. We had a sand pit for them. And, the satin bowerbird would collect the blue toys and take them and display to his females. Um, and then the girls would come and collect their their blue toys back from his bower. <laughs> uh, and there was little trumpets and battleships and, you know, all kinds like the, of things. The, the mating level of bowerbird intelligence or yeah, bowerbird yeah. interactions. Yeah, because the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the females... Judge the the the, the genetic uh, integrity of the of the males by the just like humans by the number by the size of their houses and the success. You know, if you're a if you're a sensible female, you're not going to choose as a partner some drunken <laughs> drug addict, homeless wimp or something or other um, for a, for a future partner and the father of your children. You're going to choose. Uh, a man that's that that shows that he's that he's got he's got uh, a, a, a positive you know genetic attributes, and so he's got a house and he's stable and he's not addicted to to anything and he's not violent or what have you. And so of course the rest he's got of lots the, of blue collect, collection yeah, so of blue a, things, blue plastic bits. Yeah, <laughs> see, in, a, in in the human world, it's jewellery. See the 
the male will offer the the female jewellery. Yeah. Um, and and jewels, of course, they're only valuable because they're rare. I mean, you're not going to offer your potential partner a stone that you picked off the ground because that's common. Mm. You're going to offer your partner a something that's rare. You know, like a, a diamond or something, something that's hard to come by. So it reflects how you perceive. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's valuable. One of a kind. But and the the south with the bowerbirds the same. They collect blue objects because blue objects are the rarest objects. Uh, there's lots of brown objects and green objects, but blue objects like blue feathers and blue flowers. It's a very rare color in nature. It's a rare it? color in nature. There's blue sky, uh, and uh, but the, these days. And then the brighter regent bowerbird, because it's black and gold, the male, it doesn't worry about um, brightly coloured rare things. It just uses, in its bow, it just uses sort of brown uh, uh, snail shells and, mm. and, and fruit and what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but of course at, that's at the ordinary level, but uh, at, at a... At the sort of truer level, a foundational level, a deeper level, every one of those birds and animals and plants and humans are populations of microorganisms all living together mm. uh, symbi- symbiotically. You know, as Carmel was just saying, you know, it's communities, mm. and there's only communities. There's nothing else. There's individuals. Although you can see individual leaves in a tree and individual ants in a nest and individual birds and individual people, individual fish, but they're, 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 they cannot survive as individuals. They, they can only survive as communities. Mm, there's, a, there's a system that they're abiding to. Yeah, that yeah. they've grown up with. That's right. It's a sort of a mythology concept. or something for the animal kingdom. Like yeah. every animal... Species has its own um, culture of <laughs> of community, like. and and then of course the animals and plants and the it's humans, of course, they they're also um, composed of communities because uh, the, you know all animals, including humans, of course, are communities of cells. So yeah, we have. Uh, trillions of of um, blood cells and skin cells and muscle cells and brain cells and organ cells, mm. uh, bone cells, and and those cells are all little individual single animals, microscopic animals, all living together as communities, mm. and they also live with an, another community of organisms that un, aren't related to them. So there's also vast numbers about in every person is something like 600 and, uh, 680 billion viruses mm. that are living within every single person, different kinds of viruses, and, and also um, billions, maybe 60 billion uh, microbes unrelated to humans in any way but which couldn't exist in any other environment but within a human being. So they're the microbes. There's is about a thousand of them around every human cell. Yeah. And, wow. uh, and, uh, and they're the things that digest our food. And those microbes are actually in charge of our brain. Mm. So although our brain consists of all these microscopic living organisms, you know, uh, neurons and everything, all these little... <coughs> microscopic living cells, human cells. But the most important thing we we do is eat. Mm. Uh, eat and drink, obviously, and, uh, uh, and, and then it's the microbes that can digest the food. So there's no human cells that can digest the food that we eat, which is our most important thing that we do. Mm. It's only the microbes that are unrelated to us that have colonised us that digest our food. They would digest information too, on some level, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. Like- well, the whole thing's information. But then the the microbes in you in in our gut and in the gut of every animal are adapted to feeding on particular types of food, hmm. uh, and so the microbes are in competition with one another. And so, <coughs> if you're eating 
if you don't eat meat, for instance, the microbes that digest meat will die out. Mm. And you'll, and, um, you know, but if you stop eating fruit and vegetables, say, and only ate meat, well, then the, the microbes that digest fruit and vegetables would, would d- diminish because they're not getting the nutrients that they're particularly specialised at digesting. Yeah. And so the microbes are in charge of your brain because the microbes want to eat. So when you think, oh, that food looks delicious, that's not your brain saying that, that's the microbes telling you that in your gut that aren't even related to you <laughs> but are part of your community. And so and so if you're... If you're um, Feed on, feed on highly processed fast food, um, you will naturally think that, you know, a McDonald's hamburger or a KFC chicken or something or some fast food or fish and chips or whatever or lollies or chocolates it is edible. Mm. Uh, the microbes are hungry. The, you might, if you trained your microbes yeah. to... Except that. And, and so that... Well, it's what like ha- a craving or an addiction, you know? Mm. That the body's used to that and really wants it, so the gut wants it. So um, to condition the microbes yeah. is to condition no, you your body and your life. You can't condition them. No, no, no. It depends to grow on different cultures. No, of microbes. D- depends on the species. Yeah. So I mean, so if you eat only fast food, or you only eat lollies and chocolates, chocolates and chips and stuff, mm. the microbe, and you don't eat fresh fruit, fruit mm. and vegetables, say the microbes that digest. Fr- Fresh fruit and vegetables will die out. Mm. So yeah, you can't change them. It just depends on the species that are in your gut. Yeah. So I mean, you can change them by eating then. Yeah. So, so but if you don't eat processed foods, um, you won't have the microbes that that are that 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 dominate a gut that eat that of a person that eats processed food. So consequently, like you know, a hamburger or KFC or something rather chicken nuggets or something or other won't be as appealing. Mm. If you're a vegetarian, for instance, they won't even, you know, the only thing that'll be appealing is uh, when you see fruit and vegetables. Not even coming on your radar. <laughs> no. <coughs> and so, it's, yeah, it's, so it's by your actions, by what you're um, putting into your mouth mm. is determining the, uh, the, 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 uh, the populations of microbes in your gut. Mm. And so the more you eat of anything, the, the more that, that population, that species of microbes is going to increase because you're eating lots of food. So if you're eating lots of meat you'll, and, and vegetables, you've got a balanced diet, you'll have and maybe equal numbers of microbes that digest fruit and vegetables and meat and fish and what have you. Mm. Um, but if you very rarely eat meat, for instance, then the, those microbes that digest meat um, would decrease in number. The and, colonies, uh, a weaker colony. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And they're all living in together. So, so that's a real, that's a real, um, uh, <laughs> a huge community. So every person and every animal and every plant is, is an ecosystem of organisms. Mm. And, and they all interrelate with one another so that, uh, you cannot say where one animal or one person, or one plant starts and ends because they're all interrelated. Mm. And then the plants are the same because they're, uh, <coughs> they're, they're full of microbes as well, uh, inhabiting them. And, but the main part of the plant, of course, that we're oblivious to generally are the roots. Mm. Uh, so when you see a tree or a shrub, um, there's there's often uh, much more growth below ground than there is above ground, and those trees, the roots, um, are mostly unable to absorb nutrients from the soil like we generally think. Those those roots uh, are providing homes for microbes. Uh, so surface just, area. Yeah, yeah, and so the microbes. Are, di- are taking in nutrients from the soils and the plants f- feeding them sugars. So the, the plants are, uh, are holding their cells up in the leaves and using the, 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 uh, the, the, the energy of the sun. Uh, to, and they, the, the plants have little tiny mouths on their leaves and, and they're absorbing carbon dioxide that we're breathing out. Mm. Uh, and then they make sugars. 
uh, and then they feed those fungi in their root sugars, and so the the fungi um, uh, then provide the, uh, the 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 plant with nutrients, and all those roots and fungi from all the different individual plants are intertwined beneath the ground. So that's where the mind of every plant is. And so the plants can see, they can hear, you know, they're all sentient beings. <coughs> and they're moving, of course, but they move slowly, uh, you know, with all their leaves growing towards, towards the sun or their stems. But, they're, but, but every single root ball uh, is, is, a, is a, a big ball of consciousness. And, they, and they're communicating with each other. And they're not communicating as fast as the animals are, but they're still communicating. So when an animal, uh, say a herbivore, is walking through the forest grazing on the plant's leaves, the plants are sending messages to all the other plants as a predator has arrived, put toxins in your leaves as quickly as possible. So they're sending messages apparently both through the roots under the soil and also it's putting out pheromones uh, uh, and into the air, and then the other plants are picking up. So the plants are talking to each other. Mm. And then if a caterpillar uh, is eating the leaves, the uh, the plants put out these pheromones that attract parasitic wasps. So then the wasps follow the pheromones, pheromones the plant's putting out to the caterpillars eating the leaves and it lays its eggs in the caterpillar and that kills the caterpillar and protects the plant. So the, and then so the entire surface of the planet is, is a single living entity composed just like a person is a single living entity composed of all of these multiple organisms. Uh, so, so the entire surface of the planet is a single living organism composed of all all its entities and they're all conscious and they're all interrelated they're all communicating with each other at a very basic level and it's the only known living thing um, living on the surface of a of a single planet mm. and there's probably not another one for vast distances because the universe is not interested in life or consciousness <coughs> or god or anything else the universe is only interested in Hydrogen and helium, and what have you, and the universe is composed entirely out of of gigantuous stars exploding with huge supernovas and black holes, it's huge time spans. Yeah, yeah, incredibly ancient mm. and uh, uh, and and vast beyond belief, uh, and and uh, and completely completely alien to life. And to find a, a living entity in that vastness is 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 virtually life's almost non-existent. Would it need like a lot of like surface area for life to somewhere yeah, catch yeah, so, on? That's right. So so life can only exist um, in 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 absolutely perfect conditions in a very harmonious environment. Mm. And since the universe is, is anything but harmonious, the universe is violent. Mm. And uh, and even by, like, travelling in a spacecraft to the moon, as soon as you, you escape from the electromagnetic shield that protects the Earth, um, you're instantly being uh, struck by a really violent, uh, radiation coming from our from the sun, yeah, and the sun's radiation um, right around the solar system is protecting the solar system from incredibly violent radiation coming from the rest of the galaxy. Mm. So it's an incredibly violent. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Environment, again. yeah, yes. Yeah. So everything's putting out power. Everything's energy, but so. To find a planet where you've got life, um, majority of the stars are much larger than our star, the sun, mm. and shorter-lived. Mm. Only a small number of, there's only a small percentage of small um, yellow stars. A lot of the stars are red and blue and, you know, <laughs> the smaller stars is red. Well, but, but um, there's only these small yellow suns that exist for vast periods of times 
that that, that can produce that, that can produce conditions for life. Mm. And then you have to have a planet that's exactly the right size and exactly the right distance from the star. With a system like a moon that helps to yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, give it variability to give it changing conditions. What, so what, that- it, what it needs, first it needs, it needs stability more than anything else. And it's like, as we know, you can't prosper if you don't have a stable environment. So you won't get ahead if your family is living in an unstable community. Yeah. Um, you have to, stability is everything. So, so with the earth... It just happens to be at exactly the right size so that gravity is not too strong or too weak. Mm. So if the Earth was a bit smaller, say like Mars, we'd lose the gra- the, our atmosphere. Mm. It's too small, the gravity is not strong enough. If it was a little bit too large, the gravity would be so strong that it might be okay for slugs, but maybe you couldn't stand up. And with a stronger gravity, you'd probably have permanent cyclones or whatever you'd have the weather would be worse mm. so you have to be exactly the right size and you also have to be exactly the right distance from your star so that so that h2o yeah mm. uh, can be at exactly the right temperature so that you can have water mm. because water normally only exists as ice or, or vapor uh, and so if the earth was a little bit too close to the sun, so it's only a very small margin, uh, there'll be nothing but water vapour. Or the shield that's shielding the earth and, from all this stuff. Yeah, and then bit. if it was a little bit further away, it would be, it would be only ice. Mm. So, that's, so it has to be exact, and the, and the stars are constantly increasing in temperature. So, so if we were slightly closer to the earth, to the sun, it would already be too hot. Yeah. It might have been perfect temperature years ago in the early days of the dinosaurs. By now, it'd be too hot. Mm. Or if we're a little bit further from the sun, um, it might be only just getting, after billions of years, warm enough to have have life. Because otherwise, it might have been frozen. Mm. Yeah. So and so, the planets would be exactly the right size and the right distance. And as you said, the third most essential thing is you have to have a faster spinning core than the rest of the planet. Mm. With a, and a faster spinning core, um, <coughs> our Nikolayan core, uh, and, the, and, the, and the spheres of, of uh, material around that are creating the magnetic shield, electromagnetic shield, that creates magnetism. And that magnetic shield... Um, Protects the planet from a quite a distance out from the solar radiation. That, that Van Allen belt with the radiations hitting our shield. If you don't have that shield, there's no chance of life, and that's why there's no life on Mars. And there can be never and no life on any planet that doesn't have a, a high electromagnetic shield. And, and <coughs> Jupiter's got an electromagnetic shield, apparently. I think I don't think the other planets have. And so it's another accident. Mm. So you have to have the size of the planet, the exactly the right distance, and the electromagnetic shield. <coughs> However, that still doesn't make give you any opportunity to have life because <laughs> it's like a cake mix. We need some more ingredients. Yeah, yeah. and then the so the important thing is the actual all the other planets in our solar system are all say standing straight up and down mm. in relation to the sun, North Pole and South Pole. So if our planet was like that, there'd be no life here mm. because the North Pole and South Pole would be permanent ice mm. and the equator would be permanently boiling mm. and hot air rise and cold air rushes in and would be permanent cyclones. Mm. Just the- and, and so the Earth is, is tilted over at 22 degrees. If it wasn't tilted over at 22 degrees, there'd be no life. Mm. So and then the way it, they believe it it, be, it was tilted. Is that it was, because of the moon? No, it was hit by a, a Mars-sized planet when they were forming, <laughs> that was on the same orbit, uh, and eventually hit the Earth. So there was like two planets. They were probably there mightn't have been much in the way of solid material. They might have been pure. Um, they're still cooling down. They might have been pure, pure liquid rock, magma, or whatever. Mm. And anyway, this other planet hit the Earth, it's believed, and knocked the Earth over a bit to twenty-two degrees. 
uh, and uh, and it it um, scooped out seventy percent of the Earth's crust. Uh, otherwise, there'd be no land; there'd be only oceans, mm. uh, and that went to form the Moon. Mm. And so, if that hadn't happened, there'd be no life on the Earth. There'd be no chance of life. Uh, <coughs> and then, so the the Moon is made out of the Earth's crust. And probably the core of that smaller planet, you know, ended up being forming part of our, the core of our planet, and that might be what what spun the the core of the planet. And anyway, <coughs> so that means that a planet's tilted, and we've got this big moon. And none of the other planets in our solar system have such a large moon compared to the size of the planet. And all the other planets are consequently wobbling. So if we didn't have the the moon, our, the Earth would be wobbling, which would mean like. <coughs> we <coughs> where we are, say now in the subtropics, the Earth will might wobble over a year or so, so it would actually get freezing cold. We'd be down to the Arctic, yeah. and then it would wobble slowly back until it got to the equator, and it would be boiling hot. The stability wouldn't be that. Yeah, no stability. <coughs> so you've got to have a moon holding you stable, mm. and then finally you've got a chance for life mm. <laughs> after all of those accidents. Yeah, and and then. Someone know. I mean, we, we <laughs> we're figuring it out slowly. Yeah. And then and then the planet has to have frozen solid because you can still never have it. Even with all of that, you'll still have no life. The Earth fortunately froze solid twice. Once for about thirteen million years, I think it was, and once for two million years. Mm. It was called the snowball Earth, ice ice Earth, mm. and it needed that for the solar radiation from the sun um, to create ozone and to create oxygen from the ice, take the oxygen out of the ice, or the H2O, and that finally produced enough atmosphere to, um, to allow microbes to go from single-celled you know, to multiple-celled. So you had to have all of that going on as well. If it hadn't iced up, it might never have created... Uh, an, at- an atmosphere strong enough to produce anything that microbes. Mm, like a cocoon to grow something, like yeah. an ice cocoon. Yeah. It's like yeah. grows microbes and they start to like cultivate. And, and, to- and, and then they need the, but the, you need the, you needed the ice to create the oxygen out of the ice to, to, to create an atmosphere that could, <laughs> that could have, that could support larger organisms, larger, larger things, still microscopic. Mm. And then, <laughs> uh, and but our whole system, the, the the situation of having a rocky planet near the sun, where you can have life living on the surface of it, is very very rare. Because when we look at all the other star systems around us in the Milky Way, the nearest ones that we've been able to look at, we find that in virtually every one of them, there's no small rocky planets near the sun. There's giant. Ga- gas planets near the sun so what what the situation should be here is as jupiter is uh as jupiter and saturn should be where the earth is mm. and the reason for that is the pressure from the rest of the galaxy from the radiation from all those black holes and you know, I mean, all those stars and and uh, and supernovas and everything pushes the planets in mm. and and so they now realize that jupiter was pushed in almost to where Mars is, and and, and and that swallowed up a lot of the material. That's why Mars is so small. Yeah. And then it would have continued to, to suck up, uh, uh, move closer in, and the Earth would disappear, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and maybe G- uh, Venus, and then Saturn would come in. But what happened, just by an incredible accident, um, the gravity of Saturn, as it came in, <laughs> pulled... Jupiter back out, which pulled Saturn back out, and uh, and and spun them back out away from uh, the the inner solar system, thus allowing um, rocks, more rocky planets. And so, when they look at the uh, surrounding environment of our solar system, they find ninety nine percent of the problem. One in a hundred might have a have um, the gas planets away from the sun and rocky planets near the sun. Mm. So you, you, so the, even the chance of having a rocky planet in a suitable location might be one in a hundred. And of those, 
to have a rocky planet that's just the right distance from the sun, well, that might be one in a thousand of those. Yeah. And then to have one that's just the right size as well, well, that might be another one in a thousand. And then to have one that actually has a faster spinning core, well, that might be another one in a, one in a thousand of those. And then to actually have have been tilted by being impacted by another, might be one in a thousand of those. So you might and have, have a moon, and then to have a moon that's holding the planet stable, it might be another one in a thousand, and then and it could who knows it could be one in a million. You don't really know what the odds are, <laughs> and then and then uh, you the, add all those odds up, and it yeah, becomes one in a yeah, trillion. Yeah, yeah, trillion. yeah. And so then you could probably estimate how many living planets there are in, say, the solar, the Milky Way, which has got you know something like they think two hundred trillion stars, I think it is, something like that. But anyway, vast numbers, more than you could count. So you might have 10. Mm. You might have 10. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 10 you know, planets where you potentially could have life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the planets are all, and the stars are all different ages. <laughs> so some of those 10, <clears throat> and that's only a guess, might be... Uh, really ancient, mm. and 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 some might be really young. They may have matured already. They yeah, may be yeah, still yeah, growing yeah, up. Yeah, as yeah. like their, their solar systems, the, the the planets might have been destroyed by their sun going into supernova or yeah. you know, expanding or whatever, or or, or it's, it hasn't been a long enough period of time. Humans may still be with rocks, like yeah, yeah. light fires, or <laughs> and then of may course, have like and then of course, it's highly unlikely. You'll see anything that looks exactly like a human, because, but, um, because, but, but, but it will. But each one of those planets will have life if they exist. That hmm. is, resembles what's happening here because this is an, a perfect example of you know this. Is, we've got one example, one sample. Yeah, it'll still have like a geometry of life. Yeah, so yeah, showing up. Yeah, because it's the same. It's the same uh, forces of nature, mm. uh, and so <coughs> you'll have microbes, and then <coughs> you'll have microbes that simply consume other microbes uh, or or other resources. So you'll have fungi or or animals, and you'll you know or, or <coughs> and you have microbes that photosynthesize, take advantage of the sun's energy to to create um, life or energy and what have you. So, and then it'll probably follow very similar to what's happened on Earth, but the chance of getting into a intelligent um, um, entities, intelligent beings, is very remote because it's not an advantage to have intelligence. Because the trouble with intelligence, like to have a large brain, whatever you have, you've got to feed it. Mm-hmm. So the reason we only have, say two arms and two legs, you know, you might think it would be better if we had four arms or something or other, but then you've got to create more um, more, more muscles, more cells and everything or whatever to more have. More neural connections yeah, to yeah, like... Yeah, and, and to operate it, and then, and then you've, you're going to have to feed it. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why you don't get an, animals, and it's the typical thing you see in, in Hollywood science fiction with bizarre looking aliens whether it's like star trek or or star wars or anything yeah. you, you see all these aliens that they've imagined but they've all got features that are of, of no value to them you know they might have tentacles or they might have bumps looks like or lumps or, or whatever but uh but but our our body and the body of all the animals around us they they've got to be super su- efficient and and they're they're the end product of all the forces of nature pushing down on us. Now we've got a huge pressure. We're at the bottom of an ocean of atmosphere, so we've got all this air pushing down on us. This atmosphere pushing down on us, and our body's pushing up. Mm-hmm. And so and that's that, that's creating our body shape. So you'll be able to move through that like the way a fish moves through water. So you've got to be streamlined. So you don't need bumps and lumps or anything that's that's going to you know um, <laughs> it's not going to be efficient. You, you've also got to be 
you're going to be living in an environment full of microbes. And, and of course, the general understanding of the, the majority of people on Earth, they think of themselves as a human being, this special thing, mm. living isolated but, you know, on the surface of the planet as if it's not part of the planet. For Separate, some top of the food chain. Separate at the top of the food <laughs> chain. But it's actually it's part of the food chain. You can't be... T- you can't be separate from anything. Same as you can't be separate from your community or your family or anything. Yeah, you're always a part of everything, uh, and and uh, so and, and uh, so um, yeah, uh, and you have to be efficient. So you can't have extra giant claws or jaws or fangs or horns or anything at all. Because you've got to grow those and you've got to feed on nutrients to be able to grow them. So it's stupid to have. Things you don't need. I mean, so you, you need Perfect. protection. Like, I mean, we'll get, say, tortoises have shells to prote- it's a form of protection or what have you. You know, um, a lot of the dinosaurs had spectacular, um, frills or horns, or whatever, but it was all of that was, it was absolutely vital for their survival. Mm. Um, uh, uh, either um, releasing, releasing heat from the bodies. Or absorbing heat, or whatever, or, or, or protection against large carnivores. But basically, uh, majority of the animals are fairly simplistic shape, like smooth, efficient. You know, like, and you see these minimalist, aliens, minimalist, yeah. yeah. See these aliens on, you know, intelligent aliens in Star Trek, and they've got bumps and lumps and creases in their head. And you think, well, how do you clean that? You know, no, you're going to have smooth skin. You're going to maintain it. Yeah, it's all very well to create something that looks bizarre with horns and bumps and lumps and stuff. But that's they've got to be cleaned. And the thing, it's all very well if you've got if you're in a spaceship and you can remain clean. But before you got into the spaceship, you had to live in the surface of your planet and you originated in some forest in an (laughs) ecosystem, swarming with microbes. And so you can't have anything that's not clean. And smooth and easily, you know, easily efficient. And you wrote a book on aliens. Yeah, yeah, called Understanding Humans and Extraterrestrials. How does that? How? how did, where did you get the download for that? Uh, uh, so I mean, so it's all based on the research of, uh, of of dozens of different scientists in all their different fields, looking at, and this is what I'm talking about. This is what, what how I came to understand it, or just simply reading. What all the different researchers, cosmologists and anthropologists and zoologists, biologists, geologists, uh, uh, <laughs> all working on their different fields, and then I read through their work, their scientific studies, or their, or look, look at the information from scientific journals and and, and popular scientific uh, articles in newspapers and books and what have you, and then I simply take it out. <laughs> and I put it all together. And then the reports of the extraterrestrials themselves, I simply once again took those reports from uh, articles written uh, and describing describing in, encounters with what sound like intelligence, um, technologically advanced, uh, spacefaring animals. Mm. They're all animals once again, like we're animals. And, and, I, and so I... I took reports from from about the first ones come from from about <coughs> from uh, uh, the eighteen hundreds <coughs> um, and to about the nineteen seventies. Mm. I wasn't interested in anything after the nineteen seventies because after the nineteen seventies, you know, the, there's a great deal of interest in extraterrestrials and there's television shows and movies and what have you. Before then, like the nineteen fifties and sixties, I had. The science fiction programs, but um, you know the aliens were either looked exactly like people, mm. um, like white people as well, or or um, were um, you know or blobs or something or other, uh, and and um, so the, the the most important reports are those received before the general public is really aware of mm. of science fiction or whatever, and so so if someone says you know oh I saw a thing like a blob it was like what I saw on TV. Then you think, well, you know, that's look, look, maybe the TV's planted, you know, yeah, the idea in your yeah, mind. Yeah. yeah, and so the uh, and so I was interested in all these reports of 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 crew members of craft, and the craft are virtually always the same technology, mm. and that's to be expected. Like you know, mm. the, the you know, you can only do so much with 
with with materials you've got and the laws of physics or whatever, so you mm. can create. If you want to fly, um, you've got to have a power source. Or you've got to have a propeller, or, mm. uh, uh, and or a jet engine, or and then you're going to have field wings. That you're creating, yeah. And you've got to have wings, and you've got to have wheels for it to land. So like. No, no matter who invents, who builds a plane or a car, they're all going to look somewhat similar. Mm. And then once you get past sort of that basic nuts and bolts technology and you get more advanced technology, uh, uh, it, it looks like you're going to end up with some sort of force field technology where you end up with a, a smooth object like a, like a disc mm. or a sphere mm. or, a, or a cylinder and mm. most of the... UFOs, these we take it to be extraterrestrial crafts, are, are all all similar shapes, mm. and they're all powered by some like zero point energy, which is the energy. There's you know there's as much there's as much energy in a thimble full or a tiny shot glass full of of atmosphere or whatever um, to, to power a spacecraft if you have the the technology to, to control it or what have you. Yeah. And, uh, and then so, so the craft all look the same, which is, which is, sounds like no one's making it up because if you're making it up, you might think of making up some bizarre looking craft or something or other, but the crafts are all very ordinary. You know, they're always a disc or a sphere or a cylinder, basically. <coughs> and, and so that it appears that, that, uh, <coughs> these extraterrestrials have, so there appears to be several different species mm. uh, uh, have been settled here for ages. I think they colonised the planet long ago mm. and they simply have their bases underground mm. or under the water because if you – and all of them would have evolved similar to ourselves in, in, a, in a planet that, that, was, that had accidentally uh, – uh, Develop the same uh, perfect uh, conditions for yes, life. Yeah, yeah, and, and then, then uh, you're only going to get an animal that's got any chance of developing technology it has to be terrestrial because mm. you don't need technology when you're swimming. So you know, dolphins and whales are incredibly intelligent, but they don't need technology. Mm. If you're living on land, that's when you need technology, and it's the land animals that build things. Birds build nests and. I mean, some some aquatic animals build stone nests for their eggs or something, but but usually it's it's when you're a terrestrial species living in an atmosphere that you're you're forced to build build things, and so you've got you know chimpanzees and gorillas building nests and orangutans to sleep in or what have you. Yeah. Lots of animals do that, uh, and you have to have uh, you you're going to have to have uh, hands. You're going to have eyes. In the front of your head, so you can see what's going on. You're not going to have tentacles, eyes on tentacles like a, a snail, because <laughs> that's going to take longer for the messages to go from. You know what? What's the advantage of having that minimalism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's everything's got to be minimal. So that and and you're not going to be too big, um, or you're not going to be too small generally. Um, in fact, you're going to be around about human size, roughly, because if you got if you if you can only live on a planet that's around about the Earth sized with a similar conditions, you know, to be able to begin to have life, then the animals on that planet aren't going to be too big or too small. Some animals do get very large, uh, but it's highly unlikely those incredibly large animals. They're more more herbivores that need need to consume large amounts like elephants, for instance, or hippos mm. or rhinos or whatever, and they digest all the leaf in their gut. Um, so you're liable to be a carnivore that's more likely to develop intelligence because it's got to be able to out, out with its prey. Yeah, take, uh, in, take in like nutrient-dense yeah, food. So it can yeah, that's right. Move and, quicker. And, and, and at one time it, it has to have swung through the branches of a tree, otherwise it couldn't raise its arms above its head. So the fact that we can raise our arms up means we swung from the branches of trees because we're one of the members of the great apes. Mm. We're monkeys who, who don't pull their arms up like that. Uh, so we're not we're talking about gibbons, which are apes that swing through the trees, but monkeys don't swing through the trees. They run along like dogs, as we know, on four legs. Mm. Some In South America they have, they have prehensile tails, but... 
So they can't raise their arms up above there. So they couldn't build or throw anything. So mm. you have to be able to. And then, and then you've also um, you've had to have been been semi aquatic as well. Mm. Now we're we're semi aquatic chimpanzees. The blood in our bodies is chimpanzee blood. It's identical to chimpanzees. We're ninety, I think, like ninety eight point six percent pure chimpanzee or something. And the rest mutated chimpanzee, and we've got bodies that are adapted to swimming. Mm. And we know we know that because we have to look at each other, and we can see we've got smooth bodies, not covered in shaggy hair, which would be a difficulty in swimming. The fact that we can swim, that we're athletic, we've got this hooded nose in the front of our face, yeah. um, which it, which that's an adaptation for swimming and diving. You couldn't swim if you didn't have that. If you just had two holes like a like a chimpanzee, you couldn't swim. Mm. We've got subcutaneous fat uh, 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 under our skin, the only member of the primates that do that, and that's essential for swimming, for flotation. Um, our esophagus and our breathing our tubes and everything, um, they're, they're like a manatee. They're adapted for swimming. Mm. Uh, and uh, and and that's why we're so upright. We we wouldn't we wouldn't need to be so upright if we were always terrestrial. We could be hunched over a bit like chimps and gorillas, and there's no need to be so by so upright. Mm. Uh, and um, but you have to be you have to be straight and elongated if you're going to swim. swim yeah. And and the the, the anthropologists have, have discovered that that seemed to have taken place. A, Around about between a hundred and two hundred thousand years ago, in the Levant, you know, in the in Palestine, Israel, Middle Eastern area, um, where originally, because that was um, a great migration area where animals moved back and forth, and the African savanna extended all the way to uh, Java, and during the ice ages and what have you, mm. um, grasslands, and then uh, and then when the during interglacials, um, the rainforest took over, and then they go back to grasslands again. And of course, it was multiple changing environments, and uh, and so um, Homo sapiens, our own species, been around for a couple of two or three hundred thousand years or more or whatever. Um, but uh, and then of course other species. There was always lots of different species of of um of human like animals. So you know we had the Denisovans, which have only just recently begun to discover uh, evidence of them, fossil evidence of them. Uh, they were related to the Neanderthals, but bigger than the Neanderthals. And the Neanderthals, they believe they're 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 always made to look like you know as close to a modern, you know, European as possible. But they lived there for, in Europe for half a million years during all of these ice ages, 500,000 years. They think they were pro- probably covered in long hair, dense hair. Mm. Uh, they might have been black-skinned and it might have been looked more like a gorilla. Mm. Um, they've got big eyes and they think they might have been even been nocturnal. Mm. And they hunted primarily deer and you can't hunt a deer in daytime. They can tell they, what they ate by the... Uh, by examining the isotopes in their teeth, and um, it'll tell you exactly what you've been feeding on. And they were deer hunters, and yet they only had, they didn't have bows and arrows, they only had spears. Mm. And that's, you know, fairly primitive stone technology. So they, um, um, you know, best way to hunt deer is at, at night. Mm. You can't hunt deer during the daytime, they can see you. All the predators are nocturnal, mm. just when you hunt. They were, they were predators, so they were probably looked more like gorillas hunting at night. Uh, uh, Cave uh, dwelling during the day. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, most of them didn't live in caves because there's not too many <laughs> caves around the place. Yeah. Uh, and uh, only the fortunate ones lived in caves. So <laughs> so they were probably – they were humans. They were intelligent. They were probably more intelligent than we were, yeah. but they are a different kind of human unimaginable for us but um because i mean for so many humans on the planet people um if if you're a slightly different race or a different slightly different skin color you know you, you get upset or something or other because you know as far as you're concerned a human has to look just like like you, like you or your parents or something and can't look like someone down the street you know that's how how stupid how, we are how shallow we're getting yeah, in, yeah. in today's yeah. society and it's always been that way and but but um so for half for half a million years, you know, 
the only humans in Europe were, were probably looked like nocturnal gorillas for all we know, um, with more intelligence than we are. <laughs> Uh, but intelligence used for survival, not because intelligence is always for survival, not for technology. But during um, during one of those ice ages, the uh, the or a couple of hundred thousand years ago, the the uh, uh, they believe that the the uh, climate cooled and the forest habitat and Neanderthals moved down into northern Africa, mm-hmm. uh, and so suddenly these ancient Homo sapiens. Um, which were more bent over and like, you know, not the same modern shape as not as large brained apparently, um, were suddenly replaced a couple of hundred thousand years ago by Neanderthals. Uh, and so probably what happened, I know the, the Neanderthals are highly cannibalistic. And so simply all the, all the slow humans were eaten. All the dumb humans are eaten. All the humans that couldn't swim were eaten. Uh, and then um, over the next 100,000 years, uh, there's Neanderthals or occasionally there's hybrids between Neanderthals and, and um, Homo sapiens, our species. And so obviously what's happening is that they're interbreeding with Homo sapiens. And uh, a, a, a lady anthropologist, she wrote a book called Valley of the Horses or whatever. And it was a romantic tale of how a handsome young Neanderthal um, met a beautiful young human and they got together and, you know, they produced um, modern humans. But uh, but the reality of the situation is the handsome young male probably looked like a gorilla that only moved around at night and was a cannibal. <laughs> and and the, um, and, and the attractive young human lady um, uh, <coughs> probably, did, probably, probably wasn't all that accepting of the... The young male, or something, rather than grabbed her after he'd after he'd eaten her parents or her brothers, <laughs> brothers or something or other. Uh, but anyway, so there was hybrids. Do you think there was um, like alien? No, no, interbreeding. Not, not at all. No, that's just rubbish. All of that's pure rubbish. Now, not for one second. Mm. Um, that's complete rubbish. I'll tell you why it's rubbish in a minute. So, so, um, uh, so then, the only humans that survived were the ones that could swim. Because there's always islands, and they say that the nocturnal, hairy Neanderthals, if that's what they look like, um, uh, were weren't swimmers. Mm. Uh, uh, but the but the but the humans, the modern humans, were swimmers. We've mm. always been swimmers to a degree. We might have been a lot hairier and not as upright, uh, and maybe not as smart. But we had to be the only ones that could survive were ones that were good swimmers, and they might have lived on islands off the coast or whatever. Mm. Uh, anyway, all we know is around about a between a hundred and two hundred thousand years ago, suddenly the Neanderthals begin to disappear, and modern humans take over. And and see, evolution happens when individuals are reduced. So while you've got genetic diversity, uh, you're not going to get too much evolutionary change. Uh, But when things get hard, when things get bad for a species, uh, when the predation increases, for instance, um, and individuals are reduced and their genetic diversity decreases, and that's when they begin to put out mutations, and most of those mutations aren't successful, but occasionally mutation can be successful. So if you have a minor success, a mutation where you're more athletic, you simply run faster. Yeah. Um, or, or, uh, or you've got a, a straighter body so you can swim faster, um, or you've got a slightly larger brain or anything, all of these different things. Um, uh, if you live a bit longer... Um, you, than somebody else, um, then you're like you're, you're likely to reproduce and have more offspring, and they'll and and the, any positive attributes they have in their mutations because they're all mutations. Every single individual mm. inheriting mostly from the, you know, of course, from the mother and father, and and so anyway, any any uh, any mutations uh, that are that that are. Are not positive, you know. That it means you you won't survive as long, or you won't reproduce. Well, that'll disappear. So that's how you get things like tortoises with shells, where their backbones expanded. You know, while they're running around without hard backbones, just like lizards, 
they're not going to suddenly grow shells, but if they're being eaten into extinction, uh, you know, one and their diversity drops, then you're going to get individuals that suddenly they'll, you know, produce more bone in the wrong place, but that's protection against something trying to chew them. Same thing with animals with spines like porcupines or echidnas or hedgehogs. Mm. You know, if you've got spiky hair, if your hair's a little bit spikier than, than your brother, then something trying to eat you, um, you know, so, might make it through that. Yeah, yeah, you might escape because it prickles them or something. Where your brother is more silky haired, so he just gets swallowed, <laughs> and you with the prickly hair survives, and you and you only growing prickly hair probably because you've there's so many so few of you left that you you know the genetic diversity's collapsed and you're beginning to put out mut- mutations and what have you. Mm. Uh, you know, these are the general. Th- Theories looking at reality of life, but um, and so eventually, uh, modern humans suddenly took over, and this also explains our hatred of hair. You know, we regarded a hairy human as an abomination, and that's probably where it comes from from our interaction with Neanderthals, because there was a lot of hybrids between Neanderthals and humans, and so a hybrid human probably be a hairy human, and so probably. If a woman produced a hairy offspring, well, you'd probably kill it immediately because you'd think, oh, that's the devil or, you know, I mean, remember, we're, <laughs> we're, we're superstitious and we, you know, believed in spirits and, you know, and demons and gods and everything or whatever, maybe in a fairly simplistic way. Yeah. And so probably that explains our, our, our hatred of hair, you know. So, I mean, even a hairy male, you know, a hairy male, can only just be tolerated with not too much hair, you know. But a hairy female is is totally intolerable. Like you can't have a hairy woman. You know? I mean, look at today's culture. It's like yeah, fully yeah. like you're going more and see that's an adaptation to swimming. You know, like I mean, we're like seals or whales or dolphins or something mm, or other. Sexy and sleek, sleek and yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so you're not going to be attracted by something that looks like a gorilla. Um, uh, and and since it's like going in the opposite direction, yeah, going, exactly. And and evolving. And so there's a reason behind everything that we the the way our minds work and the way we think and everything. There's a survival reason and a historical reason behind it. It's like our oh, technology. It's like swimming is a technology having sleek, yeah. muscular bodies. Yeah. It's like technology for survival. It's like the next operating system, the next evolutionary jump. Yeah, and and so and then and then of course. Because our large brain is an accident as well, uh, and and uh, of course it's, it's it's important for survival. But we've got much larger brains than chimpanzees and what have you, and and that probably comes from the fact that there we needed a larger brain to be semi aquatic, perhaps or whatever. But 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 particularly from our brain is large enough so that we can identify 150 individuals. Mm. Because we had to live to, to survive, we had to live in groups, mm. uh, uh, and then of course uh, every group is going to be in competition with every other group. So and it, so uh, so you couldn't live in a group that was too large. There was too many of you further than you could forage because you know you could only forage say one or two days or whatever around your territory or whatever, mm. and <clears throat> and so. It looks like that, that um, our brains, we can pretty much remember 150 people. Beyond that, we begin to forget them. Mm. And this is all from scientific, different scientists studying different aspects of reality, studying human physiology and everything else and psychology and everything else and history. Mm. And like, you know, tribes and even platoons of officers are always around about 150. Yeah. And it's probably... Beyond 100, if there was more than 150 individuals, you might all starve to death. There was too many to feed. You couldn't forage to bring the food in enough. If there was less than 150, then you'd be overpowered by the mob next door. Mm. So so we ended up with brains the size they are now um, because it was essential. We needed large brains. But the problem with large brains is they need more nutrients. Mm. And so that's the that's the problem. The reason why you don't get lots of animals with large brains because large brain you got to feed it. Yeah, and that and 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 our large brains have been successful, but it also looks like it's going to exterminate us because obviously you you can only develop nuclear weapons and (laughs) weapons, yeah, and AI and everything else with a large brain. Uh, But a large brain isn't, although it seems wonderful, a large brain. 
mightn't actually be wonderful. It might it, it might be the worst thing you possibly do because you destroy your habitat, and that's what we're doing. We're destroying the earth. Uh, we're getting we've got an incredible technology, which is fabulous. But it but the way the universe works, every every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and so every advance is all. And there's also a sacrifice comes with it, you know, and so you can have nuclear power, but you also got nuclear weapons or whatever. You know, you have technology, you can have fast moving vehicles and airplanes and stuff, but they can also carry bombs or what have you. So it's great for getting from one place to another quickly, but it's, but they can also carry weapons. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything, every single thing, you know, sort of, you know, a, a gun or a bow and arrow is, a, or a sword or anything, you know, a bow and arrow, a wonderful way of capturing prey, but mm. also a wonderful way of killing other people. Mm. So about 9,000 years ago, once we developed agriculture, our populations increased and we developed bows and arrows and, you know, spears and swords and everything. <coughs> so about 9,000 years ago, around about 90% of all men were killed. In battles, nine thousand years ago, long before there was Egyptian civilizations, this is just studying the, the human genetics. Mm. They found that the, the, the genetics in women is like one hundred percent diversity, mm. and in men there's only ten percent biodiversity. Mm. The diversity is ninety percent of our diversity. The males has been lost, and it was lost about ten nine ten thousand years ago. Because so that you know our large brain was wonderful, <laughs> except it also meant <laughs> that we developed things like bows and arrows, mm. and so we could kill each other off. And mm. in, in in these huge sort of battles, way before the brain recorded is history, distracted by a battle, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, that's the trouble with everything's <laughs> if every for everything's a sacrifice in life, you know. So you know, the fact that we're we're sitting talking now means we're sacrificing all the other things we could otherwise do. <laughs> yeah, all the pleasure, the simple yeah, pleasures. Yeah. yeah, and you don't know which is, you can never know which is the best, you know, it's like option, yeah. option, the best decision, you know. Everything's a gamble in life, everything's a you challenge. you just got to really go all in on the one you're doing. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to this fascinating conversation with Gary Opert. For part two of this conversation, Go to the next episode in the Quantum Feedback Podcast. To find out more information about Gary and what he's doing, go to garyopert.com. 